Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Carol Tibbles about career shifts, marketing for success, and the power of persuasion. Karen Tibbles, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat and have a chance to learn more about your uh, career experience and uh, the topic for today. We're going to be focusing on shifts in your career, uh, what kind of drove some of those shifts, uh, talk about some of your marketing expertise and marketing for success, and then um, your book about persuasion. And I want to talk about the power of persuasion in organizations um, to lead people. Um, As we get started, I want to share a brief bio. Karen Tibbles has been an executive in the area of market research and strategy with stints at, and I'm going to butcher these names. um, Merck and Novartis and Ogilvy and Mather and Ipsos. Oh, please say that again. Merck, Novartis, Ipsos, and Ogilvy and Mather. Excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Since starting in pharmaceuticals, she was responsible for many product launches. She took a detour for a degree in religion from Earlham School of Religion. She she was so excited about what she learned that it totally changed how she thought about marketing. To capture these thoughts, she wrote her first book, which is about how these theories apply to marketing and marketing research. Now she has written a second book for a more general audience, Persuade, Don't Preach, and is at work on her next book, Applying These Theories to Business Life. Uh, Awesome background, uh, interesting kind of path, and yeah, I look forward to chatting with you about all this. Would you like to share anything else about yourself before we launch in? Well, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird switch. (laughs) And when I did it, people were like, wow, that's great. (laughs) People were really supportive when I made the switch. Good. And I mean, we, we all tend to take um, interesting nonlinear paths in life. Most people do. And so, you know, moving around as we try to figure things out and figure out what drives us and, and the kind of contribution we can make in the world, you know, it's natural that we can start to uh, explore different things. So I think it's it's really neat that you you felt like empowered and like had the courage to, to take a shift like that and, and pursue something that was quite different, but also relevant and, and informed, you know, your broader professional life. So I think that's really, really great. Um, and maybe we can start there though. Um, you know, you, you were started in consumer behavior, marketing, um, research, um, and then you, you switched to go to seminary and that changed things for you. Uh, would you mind, just sharing, 
like the, your thought process about how you decided to make that shift and the types of things that did change for you? Well, you know, my I had been market research and strategy and marketing for, for a long time at a number of different firms. And I had done a lot, you know, and I had gotten to the level where I was, you know, doing teaching and mentoring and had a staff and, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I loved the field. I really did. And I really was good at, and I launched a lot of products for the product for the firms that I worked for. Um, some of them several billion dollar products. So very successful. Um, but, um, I found myself changing jobs like every three or four years and I was like, something's going on. And then it was interesting when my, when I took my son to colleges to look at it, I started thinking maybe I'd like to do something different. And that kind of set me on a path where I was open to doing something different. And then of course, because I went to seminary, you have to hear that there was a religious, a religious message that, that I could do this. Um, and so I didn't really know what I was going to do when I went to seminary. I, I thought I might go in teaching. Um, I didn't know that I was going was to come back to marketing and to consumer behavior. Um, actually, I thought I was going to teach ethics is what I thought I was going to do. So, <laughs> um, but um, I learned that, you know, adjunct professors make very little money and <laughs> um, it wasn't really a good move. So, um, and then during seminary, I just got enthralled with this theory that I found. I was writing my, my uh, thesis um, where I dug into why Quakers had made certain decisions about their business life in the past few centuries and how it had changed. And I was looking for theories for how to explain it. And I found this theory and it just changed the way I looked at the whole perspective of everything I'd done. And because when I was in marketing, we always looked at consumers as individuals. They were operating as individual, um, making individual decisions. But we never looked at the effect of their group because we never thought, okay, well, they belong to this church. That won't really matter. It's an individual church. But what this theory, which is called Moral Foundations Theory by Jonathan Haidt, um, what it says is that we have this ident group identity that we belong to that influences how we view the world. And when I thought about it, I could trace back the things I was hearing in the focus groups and in the surveys that I was doing to understand, it provided another layer of understanding that was missing. And that I think the profession as a whole doesn't get. Um, and I've, you know, I've been integrating myself back in the profession and, and going to conferences and talking to people and stuff. And and you know, becoming part of professional groups, and you know, people, you know, they hear what I'm saying, but it just doesn't. They're not really thinking about all the implications the way I did, which is why I wrote the book, the first book. Yeah, well, that's super interesting, and you know, I, I don't know if you know anything about my background, but I, you know, I do work in organizational behavior, organizational development. My PhD is in sociology, so I, I definitely. Um, I, I definitely understand uh, where you're coming from and the power of, of uh, groups um, and teams and the power of organizations and institutions and systems to drive behavior um, is very well documented. So I'm, I'm glad that that's something you, you felt like you were able to, to have an aha moment about and pull back into your work because that's, that's only going to improve um, and enhance what you're able to do for organizations. Your, right. your market launches and strategies and such. 
And then that just came from reading Jonathan Haidt's best-selling book, The Righteous Mind, which you know a lot of people read. It's been on the bestseller list. Very good book, by the way. I highly uh, endorse that book. I, I really oh, love that one. It's wonderful. But what I found was that people just don't know what to do with it. Like it, it changes the way you look at things, but you don't know what to do with it. And there's another um, pair of psychologists, Rob Willer and Matt Feinberg. Uh, Willer's at Stanford, Matt Feinberg's at University of Toronto, who have done a number of studies that they published that have consistently shown that you can use the value system that moral foundation theory uses to describe to change the way you talk about things and that changes people's minds. So you don't have to just understand what's going on. You can actually have an impact on how they're listening to what you're saying. Um, and I'm just now reading uh, Jonah Lerner's new book, Catalyst. I don't know if you've read that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I found that they have, he has their work in his distance area where he talks about how you make it less distant for people. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really great. And some excellent insights in those books, absolutely. And I'm glad that you've been able to pull that back into your work. So I'm curious, like what's, like if you were to share in a nutshell, like the one, two, three things that you learned from this new exposure in seminary to your exposure to these books and what that means like in practice to how you've changed your work in marketing. So I'll take it back to the, the movement of brands thinking that they need to take a stand in a, on a political issue like Black Lives Matter or gay rights, you know, and, you know, they have good reasons for doing so, but what they don't realize is that, so look, I'll go back to brand theory. So the reason why brands exist, the reason why brands are powerful is it helps us reduce the amount of cognitive energy that we expend when making a decision. And the people who need that the most, people who desire that the most, tend to be more conservative. So the brand profile, when you look at the political leanings for brands, as opposed to new products, it tends to be conservative. And that's true in food, it's true in all sorts of beer, it's true in restaurants, it's true in a lot of different categories. Um, but what's going on right now is the brands are taking this stand because it's right for their employees, it's right for what they believe, but they're not paying attention to what's right for their customers. And they're not paying attention to how their customers are gonna react. And there's a phenomenon going on in the marketing world right now where um, brands are losing. And you know, the center of the, the, center of the grocery store is, is shrinking. It's getting less, less sales, everything's going on the outside. And I believe part of that is because brands are not paying attention to their core consumers, those conservatives who need to the brands the most to help them make decisions and who have the most brand loyalty and they're not paying attention to it. But not, not, I don't wanna be taken as saying that brands shouldn't take a stand. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is they need to take a stand in a smarter way. They need to take a stand. So yeah, so what, so what might that look like? So it would be taking the stand, but giving a reason that would come from the value system of the conservatives. So for Black Lives Matter might be something like, we believe Black Lives Matter 
because they've been here in this country, they're truly Americans. So you use a patriotic message, which would appeal to the conservative base, so that it then becomes more convincing to the yeah. conservative base. Yeah, but, well, oh, go ahead. But because the people who work in corporations and specifically the people who work in marketing are liberal, they don't even consider it. They don't even think about it. Hmm. Um, so, so, I mean, really what it comes down to, you know, and really the whole purpose of marketing generally is it's, it's about persuasion, right? It's about convincing. It's about helping people recognize maybe a need they hadn't even previously considered um, and how a particular brand, a, a particular product or service can meet that need. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering, you know, kind of what the nuance of marketing, but, you know, that's kind of how my simplistic mind <laughs> thinks, thinks about it. Um, but it does, you know, in my mind, it comes back to persuasion. You're trying to persuade people um, to make purchases, right? Um, but then you, you started to shift away from strictly marketing to your book about persuasion um, that's a little bit more general. And I'm curious if you can talk to us about that. Like what, what, um, wh so what what's the reason behind why you decided to write that book and what are some of the lessons for organizations and for leaders about how to better use persuasion? Yeah, well, this theory just has implications all over, and I just am overwhelmed with how many implications I see from it. Um, and it sort of amazes me that I'm the really the only person talking about it, or I'm one of the only people to, persons talking about it, because I think this this theory is so goes so far in explaining what's going on and then giving us tools for how to deal with it. But when I wrote my first book, you know, I wrote it to a marketing audience because that's my background, and it was very easy for me to see the implications. And I would tell people in my life, you know, friends and family about the book and they would say, oh, I'm, you know, and they'd get a copy of the book and they'd read it. And then they go, that's really interesting, but what do I do with it? You know, they wanted to have a way to apply it to their own life. So my second book is written for all those people, the rest of the world who wants to know, you know, I can't talk to Uncle Joe at Joe Thanksgiving or in my case, Aunt Dodd, because I can't, I couldn't talk to my Aunt Dodd about her immigrant caregiver. Um, which is a story I tell in the book. And I didn't know what to say. You know, when she made a rude comment about that immigrants shouldn't be let in the country in front of her immigrant caregiver who had been giving her care for years and keeping her out of a nursing home. And I, I told her she was being rude because I didn't have any tools. I didn't know anything else to say. So this book is really a roadmap of how to navigate those difficult personal situations that we have. And we have it, you know, everybody's having them. I mean, this is not, this wasn't just me. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I saw so I had to think through how would I, now that I know this, well, my, my aunt, unfortunately, my aunt dot is gone, so I can't go back and do this, but I can think about what I would say instead. Well, yeah, yeah. I think generally in in society right now, you know, we have sociopolitical kind of angst and turmoil. Um, we have protests nationally. We're in the middle, of course, of a pandemic. Um, people, we're in an election year, so people are are nervous about that. Um, there's lots of, and, and, and I should also say the uh, 
the political divide is probably wider than it's ever been. Um, so yeah, it can be difficult to have those kinds of conversations with people who come from vastly different backgrounds or worldviews, um, who just see things so, uh, so, so completely differently. So I, I love that you're, you're, you're taking on that approach to try to be a bridge builder and to try to help people understand, like maybe there's more effective ways to communicate and have those difficult discussions, um, to help, you know, for persuasion, but even if not to persuade, even if not to, to bring someone around to your point of view, at least to be able to have constructive conversations with people again. Um, because and to we're, heal relationships, because right now exactly. we're talking to each other. Um, you know, there's data out to show that people won't consider dating someone if they're from a different political party. I mean, it's just sad. And, you know, we're about to have this election and Thanksgiving is like three weeks after the election. What, are, what is Thanksgiving going to be like? No matter what the result is, what is Thanksgiving going to be like? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get it. And, you know, <laughs> I have some of those tensions in my own family as well, like you were describing. Um, so I know, I know it's the, the focus of your next book, um, but let's talk now a little bit more about what this looks like in the workplace. Like how can some of these principles apply for leaders trying to effectively manage and lead their people when you have, you know, we, we talk about uh, diversity and inclusivity. We want people from different backgrounds with different ways of thinking. And then you're a leader of these people and there's contention, potentially there, you know, uh, certainly different points of view, um, having difficult discussions with them, all those sorts of things come into play. And then just trying to, to lead and persuade people towards, you know, the, the, the course that you see you know, as, as the correct course. So what are some of the lessons you've learned that can apply now into the workplace setting? Yeah, I, I see. Um, one of the ways that I work in my books is I collect articles about different workplaces. Um, and I'm working on a new book. My third book will be about how to apply leadership principles. Because I think there's a, a void in the leadership literature that, that focuses on, there, there's a starting to be a, a, some, some work on followership. But what, what I think there really needs to be is a match between the leadership style and the, the type of followers that they have. Um, and leadership literature just doesn't address that at all. It says this is the way to lead. And you know certain groups have a higher, um, what's called a high need for cognitive closure. Um, and those tend to be people who are conservative. So you need to interact with them in a different way than if you have a group that's willing to spend time and do, deal with nuances. Um, and I'll compare and contrast to recent events in the last few years. Let's say the Google um, engineers who walked out because Google had a contract with uh, the military to develop something, okay, versus the carrier um, and, uh, factory workers where in, in, in Indiana where Trump visited and then they were, they were being laid off. Um, they would have a the carrier employees would have a very different reaction to a, a patriotic, you know, let's build air conditioners for the military. They would have loved it, you know? <laughs> and so the, because that reflects their underlying value system, again, it goes back to the same theory and understanding what is important to the people you're talking to and then figuring out when you want to say something, how can you use what's important to them to change the way you're saying it so that it then becomes more palatable and more uh, uh, actually something they can get behind? 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it's it's about effectiveness, right? And so I know, you know, I've had these conversations with friends, family, colleagues, you know, about um, like sometimes we just need to like someone says something hurtful or offensive, and we need to stand up for the um, for the disadvantaged, and we need to be bold, and we need to um, uh, call them out, and you know these sorts of sentiments. And while I completely agree, there's a time and place for all of that, um, and it does need to happen. There's also a question of um, of effectiveness and constructive uh, dialogue that can occur, and that comes back to how we approach it and interact with people. And so people are going to put up defenses and they're going to put up walls and they're not going to engage if we use loaded terms, for example. You, you, I, I'm trying to remember what the example was you just gave a few minutes ago, um, but essentially, you know, if you, if you, you know, start out by saying, well, that's a racist comment, you know, you're not going to be having any discussion at that point, uh, even if it was a racist comment uh, and, and they probably should be called out on it. Um, but there's a time and a place, and if you're trying to build consensus and you're trying to build um, uh, relationships and collegiality and you're trying to help people work effectively together, you have to look, search for constructive ways to engage and to address those types of behaviors. If someone does or says something racist, sexist, bigoted, um, it needs to be dealt with, absolutely. Um, but let's also think about how we can effectively uh, help to shift attitudes and behaviors. I guess that's really where you're coming from, right? That's exactly right. I was just listening to uh, Krista Tippett's interview with John Lewis um, that was recorded, and he was a master at, at being, um, you know, standing up for what he believed in, but doing in such a way that it didn't create hatred. And right now we've got hatred going on and we've got lots of bad feelings, and I want to be a part of healing this if I can. Yeah, well, I love that. I love, I love the idea of healing. I love the idea of bridge building. Um, as leaders, you know, organizational leaders, uh, they, they carry a heavy burden because um, they, they have so much responsibility and they get pressures from all sides, and if you're a leader that really cares about your people, you want to protect your people, um, and you also need to be driving higher performance. And so you have all these conflicting sometimes and competing uh, pressures and priorities. And ultimately, um, you know, if, if you, if you fall on, on, if, if you decide I need to just take a stand, make an example of this person, um, uh, because of something that was done or said, um, you know, there, there might, might be a time and a place for that, but in the, the normal day-to-day -day interactions that you have with workers, um, you know, if that's kind of your go-to style to always, you know, make an example of someone to always call them out in public and to, to um, use those loaded types of terms that you know, you know, will, will set people off or build or, or, or raise walls, then you're just not gonna have an effective team. Um, it's just the way it is. And so, you know, we have to think smarter about how we engage with each other. We have to, I also think we need to try really hard to be understanding and give people the benefit of the doubt, understanding that a lot of people maybe don't have the right language to express themselves. And, and so, you know, sometimes they may say something in an incredibly clumsy way, um, even in an incredibly offensive way. 
um, but maybe that's not really their intent. Um, you know, so we can try to give people the benefit of the doubt and help them along as they learn how to more productively engage in these types of difficult discussions or disagreements or whatever in the workplace, then we can have better outcomes. Yeah. And the thing is, is that this work is not easy to do. I mean, I've been thinking this through for years and years and years. And, you know, again, people who read my book go, okay, you give me tools, but now I, now I need help. So, I mean, I'm trying to create workshops for people to help them figure out how to do it because, you know, seeing it in the wild and identifying it and then being able to act in the moment, it's, it's tough when you, you want to change your behavior. I, you know, changing behavior has four steps where there's conscious, uh, unconscious co un incompetence, uh, conscious incompetence, conscious, in, uh, co yeah, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. And it takes a lot of work to get to that fourth stage. Um, so I'm hoping to help people in this, these workshops. I have the first one planned in September to help people go through them in such a way to help them practice it um, and, and actually make this real. Yeah, well, that's, that's wonderful. And I applaud you for the good work you're doing in this space because it's, it's really needed. Um, Karen, we're about out of time uh, and I really appreciate the lively discussion. Uh, before we part ways though, I would love to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get in contact with you and learn more about what you're doing. Right. Well, you can, you know, there's two books. Persuade Don't Preach is the most recent one for general audience. Uh, for marketing audience, it's Marketing land, Landmines. Uh, they're both available on Amazon. Uh, and my website, I have several websites. I have one for each book, um, marketinglandmines.com and persuadedontpreach.com. They can get in touch with me at um, Karen at Ethical Frames, which is the name of my company, ethicalframes.com. So Karen at ethicalframes.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure talking with you. I look forward to seeing when your third book comes out, um, as I, I suspect that'll be an incredibly useful tool uh, for leaders and organizations. I encourage my listeners to reach out, uh, to find out more about what you do, um, and to, to connect. And I hope everyone stays healthy and safe and have a wonderful week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.